Okay. Let your mind imagine a couple who one day said to each other, let's start a family. They're going to have your nose and my eyes and be stubborn like you and fiercely loving like me. And as they grow, they will fill our future with depth and color and affect and sound. They will bring such joy and healing to the world, and the cosmos itself will become more alive. Now each morning, the mother's belly feels slightly larger to her as she rubs creams on it to care for her skin, marveling at how her body, an extension of the earth, the dust of the ground, is heaping up particle by particle, cell by cell. Throughout the long days and nights when she can't sleep, she sings and hums to the life growing inside, and it knows her mothering voice from the inside out. At birth, the very first thing they do is draw this little life intimately close to their own faces, their breath washing over her, and her tiny puffs of breath washing over them. And the more they gaze at and embrace and pour their lives into each other, their life is multiplied, and the more alive they all become. Now, although redundant, let me tell the story in a way that you've heard before. But hopefully now you'll hear it in a new way. Then God said, let's create humankind in our image, according to our likeness, and let them have responsibility over all the creatures of the earth. And then God formed humankind from the dust of the ground and breathed into its nostrils the breath of life. And the person became a living being. We hear the voice of God through the reading of these words. Thanks, God. So, we are beginning a new sermon series this morning entitled, Becoming Ourselves, Exploring the Relationships that Shape Us. Aurelia Fran and I believe that humans are profoundly relational beings. This is one of the core assumptions of this community. Humans, at our core, are profoundly relational. Another of our assumptions is that problems stem from finding ultimate meaning elsewhere, like in pleasure, or in wealth, or in freedom, or in peak experiences. These things are all well and good in and of themselves, but they cannot keep you fully alive by themselves. They are poor substitutes for what we need most in life, from the very beginning, throughout the middle, and certainly all the way through the end, we need healthy, life-giving relationships. They make us who we are. I've shared this story before, but I had a profound experience a couple of years ago. I was standing in a cemetery, and as I looked at all the headstones around me, for some reason, I just looked around and started noticing that Almost all of the identity markers carved into stone were relational terms. They all said something like mother, father, friend, son, daughter, beloved. It was a spiritual experience for me, which is to say 
I felt like I could see the world and what is truly important like I'd never seen before. This was part of a reorientation that was going on in my own life during that time in which I was giving up the notion that God was something I had to think rightly about, and instead I was learning that God is something I live with others, with you all, with the people I encounter in life. Now, this shouldn't have taken me 30-some-odd years to get, but in this society, it really is a foreign concept. We are slow learners, but I think we're headed in the right direction. Every day, we are learning what the rest of creation intuitively knows. Everything is related. The microorganisms that make up my gut flora impact my brain functioning. Our earliest relationships and experiences, even in utero, they affect the rest of our lives, our career and mate choices, and perhaps even our lifespans. Astronomers continue to discover how the universe contains an interconnected cosmic web made of filaments spanning millions of light years long, pumping nutrients to baby galaxies millions of light years away. To exist is to be related. And all of our problems stem from forgetting this fact. And here's where the theological word sin perhaps fits into our lexicon still. Yes, a progressive church like this still uses the word sin. We just think it has a lot more to do with how we treat each other than whether or not we are satisfying religious purity codes. I often think about how religions, at their best, they are wisdom traditions that teach us how to live together, how to relate to one another, to God, to ourselves, and to the rest of creation. And if your religion doesn't do that, it's toxic, and you really should get rid of it. Some of the religion and the religious imagery that our society has is, is toxic like this, and it's because we've moved away from the relational purpose of religion, and along with it, relational images of God. The idea of the person of God is our most sacred, transformative, generative human notion. It's the most amazing idea that's ever popped into our heads. Or it can be the most dangerous, harmful, community-destroying notion. The images of God that most of us know are king, ruler, warrior, judge. And maybe sometimes we think of father, but insofar as father means those other things, yeah. These are all violent, hierarchical, authoritarian terms to describe God, but they're the ones that we prefer to use for some reason in society. The problem is, although our sacred text uses these images at times to describe God, yeah, that's in there, they've become the only ones that we're allowed to use even though the Bible also uses many other images, metaphors, and names to help us conceptualize God. I found that we are so captive to these notions of God as king, ruler, warrior, judge, that any time I try to use a different biblical notion to talk about who God is, people usually lose their minds. You can't do that. You can't talk about God like that. God's not a mother or a wild dog or a trickster. All of these are in Scripture. But how dare you? I was talking to one of my 
peers in school the other night. Um, I thought, this is the University of Texas. These are open-minded people. This is a social work program. So I started talking about God in these other ways, and she was upset and refused to talk to me for the rest of class. So <laughs> it's like we're not allowed to do that. We, uh, it's like we've been colonized to think of God only in terms of powerful, dominating rulers. And then, not surprisingly, it's sociopaths like that who rise up to the top in our society and societies throughout history. I think you would agree with me that the world needs a different image for God. One of the names of God in the Bible is El Shaddai. This is a term that has historically been translated as the Almighty One, even though it's a feminine image of God, and it possibly means something more like God of the mountains that I flee to for safety. Or some people interpret the mountain peaks poetically, and they translate it as something like God whose nurturing breasts I cling to as a frightened child. And then some shorten that even more to say God as the many-breasted one or the large-breasted one. But we don't have freedom in society to talk about God that way. Some of you right now might be squirming in your seats as I talk about God that way. See, these images don't win out in history. They're not sanctioned because, you know, it's really hard to build an empire and take over the world with images like that. Doesn't really strike fear into the hearts of enemies, does it? So, those that have the power to make authorized scriptural interpretations opt for the Almighty One, because they think that that's an image something like a 95% benevolent Thanos with all the infinity stones. That's more like probably what God is than a breastfeeding mother. And so, one way of thinking about God becomes the way of thinking about God, and never mind all the other possibilities out there, the ones that we need to navigate society today. We try to think differently here at P. And we believe there are many faithful streams of theology that can be helpful to us. These include Latin American liberation theology, black liberation theology, feminist theology, mystical theology, existential theology, and the kind I want to talk about this morning and I'm talking about right now is called relational theology. Relational theology is a way of practicing theology that looks at the biblical stories and instead of seeing God as the genie from Aladdin, or worse, as Jafar the genie, you see, instead, a starry-eyed couple who want their particular way of loving can be propagated throughout the cosmos. It's a way of practicing theology that looks at Jesus' relationship to God, and instead of seeing a dad who takes his wrath out on his son in an act of divine child abuse, otherwise known as atonement theory. Instead, you see Jesus as a person who reminds the world that our benevolent divine parent prefers to go by the most intimate of names. Abba, like you talked about, Joyce. Abba, Father, the kind of name that we carve into rock and place over the dead bodies of our most beloved people. Jesus teaches us that is God's preferred name. It's a way of practicing theology that says, if you've ever received or given love, then you know theology. And more importantly, you know God, because God is love, which is to say, love is the I am, 
which is to say love is being. Aurelia preached a few weeks ago about our guiding hermeneutics or our guiding principles for understanding and practicing our faith in this community. And what I'm saying right now is that one of our guiding core principles is that God is love and love is being and to exist is to love. You could say we have really only one sermon that we preach over and over again in a hundred different ways and it's that one sermon. God is love. In fact, We've been criticized and told that all we talk about is love and relating to one another in non-dominating, non-hierarchical, non-sexist, non-racist ways. Come on, can't we please talk about something else already? And these aren't just outsiders, it's people here in our community. These aren't just internet trolls. They're friends of mine. I love you all. Listen. I am completely willing to talk about God as king, God as butt-kicking warrior, God as dominating ruler like every other church in town, as soon as I have the sense that the fiercely loving God of Jesus reveals to us or is revealed to us every day on our tongues, in our paradigms and mental models, woven into our societal systems and budgets, and in a word, omnipresent like God should be. As soon as the God of Jesus is omnipresent, then I'm ready to start talking about these other ways that we know God. On the day that we stopped electing sociopaths at all levels of government, when we stopped the wealth extraction process that capitalism has become for us, when we stop raping the earth, when we stop concentrating power at all levels of society and we share it, then I am willing to talk about God as king and ruler and warrior. Until then, those are not the metaphors we need. This feels a little bit like my Johnny Cash, here's why I wear black moment right now. I refuse to wear color because of all the atrocities out there. Well, that's what Johnny Cash would say. Do yourself a favor and listen to that song this week. I'm saying the same thing. I refuse to talk about God as king, ruler, warrior, judge, because that's what's leading to the ills in our society. We need a different metaphor for God. And I get it that this might be bothersome to some people, but that's really unfortunate. We live in a world that is increasingly authoritarian, where countries are knowingly practicing forced organ harvesting. You heard me right. Authoritarian governments are doing this to their people. We live in a world where we are spending $2 trillion a year on war making, half of which comes from just two countries, the two economic superpowers, the US and China. We live in a world where we as a nation make up 4% of the world's population, and yet we imprison 22% of the world's prison population. I feel really certain that we understand God as king, warrior, and judge. We've got that down, right? Don't all those stats show that we understand those metaphors for how God might operate or what leadership should look like in this world? This is what happens when the Jesus story is used to uphold domination systems rather than relational systems. This is not the God that we need to see for the next 
century. We need to see the motherly father and fatherly mother God. We need to see the crucified God of Jesus. We need to see the brave, bold, and uncouth God of love. We need to see the God who practices kenosis, fancy word for self-emptying and humility to make room for others. We need to see the God who confronts demonic systems everywhere they manifest. We need to see the God who calls forth the agential power of others, reminding them you are an agent in God's world, reminding them that you bear the family resemblance of unapproachable light, and you are in the family business of darkness slaying. Like the angel in our other scripture reading this morning, we need to see the God who labors with scoundrels all night long, bringing about a new identity and an open future that is no longer closed off because of the past. We need to see the God that, as theologian Jürgen Moltmann says, is sovereign, not because God controls everything, pulling all the levers, no, but God is sovereign because God can bear the weight of everything, like getting crucified and still be there and still not leave. We need to see the God that beats swords into plowshares, that beautiful image from the Old Testament that transforms the battle hymn of the Republic, that song that we kind of sang but didn't, transforms it into your peace will make us one. That's the God we need to see. I don't know if you noticed, but the, um, the name on that song, the one who wrote it, Audrey Assad, right? Same last name as the ruler of Syria, I believe, who has been slaughtered in a civil war now for over a decade. Yeah. Yeah. Did I say that right? Okay. Um, that's a beautiful uh, contrast that she writes that song, Your Love, Your Peace Will Make Us One. That is the God that we need to see. And not just us, for our little community. That's the God that the world needs to see. It is only this relational God who can save us from ourselves today. I put a little uh, quote inside your guide at the beginning. This is uh, from Night by Eli Wiesel. Um, In that scene in the book, Uh, There are some people being hung, one of whom is a child, and this is in Nazi Germany, I believe, and and the little boy, I think it's a six-year-old boy, he uh, struggles uh, for like an hour in the gallows because he doesn't weigh enough for the rope to hang him. It's it's tragic, Um, and somebody in the crowd, they're forced to watch this, and somebody in the crowd says, where is God? How can I see this? and say that God exists. And the person in front of them turns around and says, God is right there, hanging in the gallows with him. God is here. And Jürgen Moltmann, a German theologian, after the Holocaust, grabs onto that, builds a beautiful theology around that, that God is with us, and it's only this relational God that is with us in the death camps, in the ovens, and the gallows. That is the God that this next century needs, not the God that led us 
to a holocaust, not those images of God. And so he says it's only this relational God that can possibly save us now. So God created humankind in this image. In the image of God, they were created. Male and female, they were created. May that be true now more than ever. Amen.